Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Chris O'Fall. I'm the Deputy Editor of Film and TV Craft at IndieWire. And my guest today is director Spike Jones and his editor Jeff Buchanan talking about their documentary, The Beastie Boys Story. And today's podcast is brought to you by the Apple TV Plus original series, The Morning Show. The drama series explores the cutthroat world of morning news and the lives of the people who help America wake up in the morning. It's told through the lens of two complicated women working to navigate the minefield of high-octane jobs while facing crises in both their personal and professional lives. It's starring Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon, Steve Carell, Google Matara, Billy Crudup, and a very funny Mark Duplass. It's four-year Emmy consideration in all eligible categories, including outstanding drama series. And I, I know they just listed off this wonderful cast, but you know that wonderful cast was put together by uh, casting director Victoria Thomas. And I'd be remiss on the Filmmaker Toolkit podcast if I didn't mention, uh, you know, there's a lot of our favorite artisans working on this show. Carter Burwell is one of the best composers going. It's a Filmmaker Toolkit podcast, so I thought I'd editorialize. Anyways, uh, it's, visit fyc.appletvplus.com. So, so two of the three remaining BC Boys put out a book in 2018 and did uh, these uh, live reading shows, uh, which I gather was the start of this. And, and Jeff, you were involved with those even before Spike was doing a movie, right? Yeah, Mike. Um, I, I mean, I think Mike probably reached out to Spike um, and asked if Spike knew anyone who could sort of go through the photo archives and look at a script of like a, a stage show that they were reading and sort of just come up with visuals that could play behind them. So the first thing I did was just, I had, I got a PDF of the book and I just started going through all the photos from the book. And we, I think we had like an archive from the woman who, um, from the people who published the book. So they just sent me a, like a, a massive drive with like thousands and thousands of photos on it. And I just started building like photo montages that would were play would play behind the guys as they were reading their stories. And, and Spike, I, I, I presume you went to one of these uh, live reading shows and, and you saw something that was, because my sense is that it was something that you saw in one of these shows well, that actually, it should be something more. It, it took, it took him in a more circuitous route was, uh, so when they were getting ready to do their book tour, uh, me and Mike, I was with Mike one day and he was telling me that they were trying to figure out how to do a, 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 a do the book tour, uh, how to make the sort of reading the book and the Q&A more interesting. And I had suggested actually to tell a story, to have it, to take sections of the book and make it sort of put on a show basically. Bring mm-hmm. um, Mixmaster Mike the DJ and play music and tell, tell the story, act out skits, turn some of the, you know, like sort of... M- not do a Q and A, but put the readings in the context of a story, and um, so I think that was a sort of impetus for sort of starting, sh- sort of shifting it into what it ultimately became. But that version then, so yeah, me and Amanda, our producer, and Jeff helped Mike and Adam do that one, and uh, but it was a really down and dirty, but done really fast, super fun, and very very loose and. Um, and uh, and Mike and Adam really pulled that one together. I'd say in like a month, and um, and we, then we'd go by rehearsal every now and then and give notes and opinions. And uh, so yeah, I saw we you know that was fun. That was a really fun one. Just sort of done done sort of like really putting on a play in your barn kind of style. And uh, and then after we did a few, we were like, God, this is great. We should be documenting this. And so then. We filmed the last show in London, but filmed it really poorly and 
fortunately, we didn't film it well because then we were like, we should really put this, we should go and do this properly. And like, if it felt like there's, there's something there that if we really went and wrote a proper script to tell this story as opposed to the sort of, that was like, that was the fast fun one. And then this was the one that was sort of, we went deeper and really told the story. Uh, and um, and so, yeah, we all sat and worked on a script for about six or seven weeks. We really didn't give ourselves enough time. I don't think we thought, we didn't, I don't think we knew how much we were really gonna write the script from the fall one. It was really, we wrote it from, rewrote it from scratch basically, except for a few key monologues from the book. And, uh, and, um, and it just became the, yeah, it was, it, it, it's like, I, I kind of knew that if we were going to do another version of it and we were going to film it, there was a lot of things about the band that I wanted to represent. A lot of things about the band that I love and, you know, not only the music, but how they make the music and not only the fact that they're friends, but what their friendship is and the sort of loyalty that they have towards each other, the sort of strange hive mind they have together, um, their humor, their, uh, I don't know, just the way they, the way they operate as humans and as, as, as a band has always inspired me before I knew them. And then as I got to know them even more. And so I think that's, I really wanted to capture, capture that and capture ultimately what's at the root of their band is their, the friendship of the three of them. And, um, and so I think when we were working on the script, I just kept asking questions about to get deeper into that experience and what they felt moment to moment through, through the period. And we kind of narrowed down on the first 10 years of the band, because that was sort of the period where the band sort of evolved and changed and went through the most, uh, the most meaningful growth in terms of a story that I thought was compelling. Yeah, because one of the things is, is that... Oh, Jeff? Yeah? Jeff raised his hand. He's got, <laughs> got something to say. No. You nailed it. <laughs> Nothing? No notes on my, my comment? <laughs> You're Jeff the note and I had giver. A pre- <laughs> I'm the note doer. <laughs> All right, I like that. <laughs> Because all that stuff that you described about them is kind of as we think about them as characters in a story, it, they needed all of that, that personality, that bond, that the way they worked to kind of survive all that they survived. Because the story, I was I rewatched it again this morning. It's really the like becoming of the Beastie Boys. It's like you know right around that. It's not till about like that one hour fifteen minute mark into this that we have this sense that they've figured this out that they've become you know, both as people, as musicians and, and, and kind of survived everything from the license to ill. And it's almost like all those things that you describe become how, how they become, they, because I think the the idea is, is that based on the story that you told after what happened with license to ill, most people would have fallen apart if they didn't feel confident as musicians, if they had lost themselves. Yeah, I think that's a good way to say it. It's in, uh, they basically it's about it's really about growing up i mean that's basically what the story is about in a really uh to me really touching and um inspiring way because of how honest they are about all of their mistakes and all of the thing all the things that they've done that are embarrassing and uh, adam was talking about the other day how you know he thought about things 
you know, he thought thought a lot, especially writing the book about License to Ill and the things he was embarrassed about that time or the the mistakes he'd made at that time. But it wasn't until he got on stage and at one point me or Jeff or Amanda or maybe Jonah who Jonah Hill was our producer too the you know we where somebody said why don't we read some of the lyrics from the first album and Adam maybe just stand on stage and read the lyrics to girls and he said that's when that song really hit him to actually stand up in front of people and have to read those lyrics in front of in front of 2000 people he said that you know he 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 knew he, he knew what the he knew what the song was and you know had you know, felt felt very, um, you know, was very embarrassed about it. But I think he said it really hit home when he's in front of 2,000 people and having to say those words out loud. What, what about the performance aspect of this? I mean, obviously they're performers, but I mean, I have to imagine part of this is, it sounds, I was talking to Jeff earlier, it sounds like there's a constant rewrite process. But then there was also L.A. to Philly to New York and a, a, almost a rehearsal filming finding it process right and 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 i don't know when filming started and it it versus you know just doing some stage performances but i mean in terms of like getting not only the script right but also it sounds like the getting the kind of blocking and performance right well i mean part of it also is that like we have never done this before and in a way, you know, we're all idiots and thought we could do it the whole thing in like two months from like page one to like the final show and the, ha- and mm-hmm. having shot it on film. Like in eight weeks, we thought we could do all that. And I think by the time it was six weeks in and we still hadn't finished the script and we were like like on stage in L.A. supposed to have been rehearsing and like teching it and all the stuff that they do in theater, we were still in the dressing room writing it. And it was, it was so like it was very you know, just kept, we kept, because of that, that we just kept trying stuff and trying stuff. And, and, um, you know, the great thing about them is they are performers. They've been on stage since they were 15 years old. So they're very comfortable on stage, even if they're not as comfortable reading, telling stories in that context, they, they are really good on stage. And so we, uh, they, we always had that chemistry and that, that, the fun of just watching them together. And I think we always tried to keep it loose, like let there be enough time, let there be plenty of times where anyone could ad lib and go off any, go off on a tangent whenever they wanted, knowing we only were doing four shows and hoping that we just get as much footage as possible. And so each one of those four shows, every one of them was completely, not completely different, but there was probably about 20% of it that was totally different every time. Because they're different things would like as you see in the film, uh, there's like a lot of fuck ups, like you know teleprompter fuck ups or, or timing or cue, you know, miscues, and we kind of just let that all be part of the show. And um, and you know I had a I had this microphone back, you know, me and Jeff and Amanda and our stage manager um, were all sitting next to each other in the tech row back in the back of the theater. And I had this microphone where if they were off, if they went off the rails or if I needed to bring them back or if I just wanted to give them shit about something, I could just interrupt with this microphone that broadcast through the theater or they could yell at me and I could, you know, fix whatever mm-hmm. was going on. So we kind of end up using that to 
help cover how unprofessional we were. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Spike is doing a good job of making it seem like it was a lot of fun, but it was, it was terrifying. It was so it was scary. Like it was. Good point, the, Jeff. I forgot about that. It was like, some days it felt like, it was like fire fest. It was like, it was like, how is this going to work? You know, it just felt like it was so, you know, it wasn't, it was just, we, we had so many ideas and we wanted to do so much and we did all of it. It was amazing. But, but like, it was scary. That's true. It, it was, was like, scary. It, we knew like we, we did four shows. The first one was in Philadelphia and that was the first one we filmed. You're asking what we filmed. We filmed the, the four shows, one in Philly and three in Brooklyn. And, um, and so like we knew eight o'clock on Friday night, something is gonna happen. People are gonna mm -hmm. be in the theater. The lights are gonna have to go up. <laughs> And wherever we had gotten to at that point was what was going to show. And what we, where we got into on that first night was we got something. It's like we'd gotten, we'd actually, I think we'd only made it through the, the show without stopping one time. So it's like normally you would have had 10 of those at least, 10 run-throughs, if not more. And uh, so that was like we made it through once. We knew... And we made it, and there was so many fuck ups. There was like, and so anyways, when we did the first show in Philly, it was like at least three and a half hours long. It was an hour late, a 45 minute intermission. And even once it started, it was three and a half hours long. But luckily Philly was so drunk and rowdy and like such a good crowd that it kind they kind of, they kind of carried us through that. <laughs> and then, and then we had three days off, but moved to New York and we just went deep into the script, like cutting, like, I, I don't, I think, I don't know how many pages. We might've cut like 15 or 20 pages yeah. even. It felt like Jeff, you're, after, si you're, si you're sitting there, right? You're, you're, yeah. you're kind of next to Spike throughout this whole process. Yeah, I was, what? yeah, me and, I mean, Spike and I were sitting with Amanda, we're sitting there during the first act of the Philly show, Friday night. <laughs> and we looked at our watches and it had been, they had been on stage for like an hour and a half. And like we're probably you know the only three people in the audience people there that realize they still have like four more hours probably to go here. <laughs> so I think it ended up being Spike. Remember we went to their dressing room in at intermission and we were like we got we got to cut some stuff in the second act. Oh right. So we're not here till two in the morning. Right, we did. <laughs> yeah, we did some fast cuts at, 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 uh, in an intermission. Yeah, yeah. So the whole thing was done. It was super stressful. It's funny, like. It's been almost a year. It's I think it's about exactly a year since we yeah. shot it, and now I'm like, oh yeah, that was fun. I I, I forgot about all the the pain and. I mean, it was fun. It was always fun. It's like at the end of the day, we're like working with the Beastie Boys to make this amazing, you know, tribute to them with this, you know, music and photos and videos. And Spike had a microphone. I mean, the whole thing was fun. But man, it was like three in the morning when it's like knowing that there's going to be people showing up the next night just like and we're recutting like we're the, cut, the, yeah. the, some video montage that was too long or didn't work or didn't yeah. get the laugh we thought it was going to get or whatever it was i think i guess i guess the thing that does make it fun is even when it's really stressful and you feel like you're making something that's not going to work and uh, you're, you're, you're at least doing it with your friends and people you love and that you're able to sort of enjoy the pain of it, somehow find yeah. laughter in the, the pain of it. 
definitely. It kind of seems like the it kind of seems like the uh, the stories that you were telling about Paul's boutique and uh, check your head. Kind of the process of making those albums. Well, we're, we're, um, I mean, I got to grab a water. Sorry, uh, yeah, yeah, Je- no, Jeff. Please. Say some real smart shit while I'm okay. gone. Well, I'm <laughs> just gonna talk shit. You know, Jeff, I I have to imagine that um, you know it's Spike's telling this as if it's uh, you know him getting the mic was almost a. a by accident, but I have to imagine at some point there's an element there because they are being so brutally honest because they're, they're revealing themselves that, um, that spike having the mic, um, in terms of, cause they are the beastie boys. They are fun. They are, there is a humor here. I have to imagine that that became in a, for whatever practical purpose it served spike having a mic also gave you a different comedic beat. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, I think the whole microphone thing came out of, the writing sessions and my memory spike i'm saying about where the microphone where you how you ended up with a microphone my memory was was that it was during those writing sessions and you know adam would always or adam or mike would always you know they would they would start talking and then if they were telling a story it could just go anywhere you know mike could just he could be in the middle of a story and you could be on the edge of your seat. And then he'd be like, and we were eating this breakfast and he would tell you everything that was on the plate for breakfast. And it'd be like, get back to the story. So Spike would always just be like, Mike, get back to the story. And, or, or he would just be prodding Adam to like go deeper into a story and like, what were, how are you feeling during that? And then someone, I don't know who it was, but they were like, this is what, this is what is going to be great about the show. We need Spike to be, I think it was Jonah. I think Jonah yeah. was maybe the one who said it because he was yeah. just watching the dynamic of the yeah. three of us. So Jonah's mm-hmm. like, "This is what. This is great. This is we need Spike <laughs> directing you guys on you know during the show, and it ended. And both it was practical because it was like, it was we had it. What, what do we always say in the right? Oh, we got to land the plane, Mike. You got to <laughs> land the plane. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Mike. Mike. Is good at getting a story off the ground, but not good at bringing it back to the ground. Definitely. It's funny. I, the first time I saw it, I just kind of assumed some of that was uh, was um, set up gags, you know. The but I guess <laughs> I guess it wasn't the uh, some I, of the things. I, I think maybe it comes off set up because we use such, such so so many so few of them. But if yep. you, live, after a while, I think you probably the amount of times we'd have to use it. <laughs> to like get the thing back on the rails, uh, I think maybe you'd get more more of a sense that we, yeah. we were unprofessional. Yeah, that came so, across so, perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Jeff, I, I'm I'm guessing that um, with recording four shows from all the various coverage that you had of each show, um, I, I got the sense that maybe the coverage didn't change from show to show, but obviously you have different performances. Is that? Was this was this like when you're cutting, really digging into the different performances and mixing and matching them from the from the four shows? Um, yeah, I mean, from a performance aspect, for sure. I mean, there was um, the coverage was pr- Philadelphia. We only had two cameras, um, so we did a wide and like a medium, I think, that bounced between the two guys. Um, but the coverage in the three Brooklyn shows was very similar. You know, it was two. You know, there was some some nights we had. I think one night we had a steady cam operator that was ro- roaming around and then um but yeah i mean once we got into it it was really like we just broke the script down into 
into just each story, you know, like the same way you would in a movie, you know, you have a scene like um, Adam doing the girls, you know, reading the lyrics from girls. That's a scene. So we would just go between night one, night two, night three, night four, figure out which one worked, you know, which performance was best. And that would be, you know, our hero take for that. And then once we're in the thick of editing, we're, you know, we're going line by line, trying, you know, just making sure that every, every beat is exactly, you know, the right performance, the right tone, the right rhythm that fits in. So it wasn't, in that regard, it was, a, you know, it was a little bit like editing, you know, a, a, a fiction film, you know, where you're going through and selecting takes. Mm-hmm. But um, it was, yeah, it was, it was, that was the, the performance part was, you know, that was one element of it. But this, the time we, the most time I think we'd probably spend editing was the archival, like going through all the archival and mm-hmm. finding the right archival piece of video that that perfectly could play on top of what they're saying on stage. And I assume that process started with, because you had to create the video that's behind them on screen, right? So, I mean, part of... Yeah, he was, it's he, not, was, he was there, the whole rehearsal process for those two months, he was already, he was editing, and then on stage he'd be editing, and uh, he, he and Zoe, our other editor, would were there in, in Philly and Brooklyn, they'd be editing all those montages, and I think the thing that happened was, it was like we made two completely separate things. One was this play, and that was really a thing totally unto itself that we knew we were shooting, that we were going to shoot and to make something out of, to make a film out of. But then I think at, during that week in Brooklyn, we were like, because the show is like three and a half hours long, even still, or maybe three hours long by then, if once we cut it down a little bit, um, not counting the intermission. And uh, and so I think that we, me and Jeff and Amanda started saying, oh, I think this, this, this is going to evolve a lot when we get into the edit room. We're going to, this this isn't going to be so much a document of the show as we wanted to make it much tighter and much more of much like not because there's a lot of theatrical things that happen. There'd be like Michael K. Williams would be playing Bob Dylan and reenacting a story about when Mike D ran into him at a Dolly Dolly Parton's birthday party in 1989 or, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Adam Horvitz would have a wig on and be acting out a conversation they had with this record label executive that, uh, was telling them that um, Paul, they couldn't promote, the, they weren't going to promote Paul's boutique because they had they had a Donnie Osmond album coming out that was their top priority, or uh, just uh, you know there was all this other stuff, and I think that, you know we really sort of decided to let it be, let it evolve into its own thing, and really hone it in as and let it be more of a documentary as opposed to a, a document of this entire three and a half hour show. Because Jeff, the archive, you know, I, I, my assumption was because they had just done the book and there's hundreds of photos in the book, that that might have been an easier archive process. But I'm, but what I what I learned today was is that you, actually, this archive process went right up to final cut. And there's MTV. There's this endless trove of Beastie Boys video and and footage. So this was, you guys were digging into archive throughout this whole, even not beyond even what you created for the stage show. It it just kept opening up and opening up. Yeah, it was always, I think we, we, I think we always go into things thinking it's, oh, this is going to be easy. We'll do it. This the easy way. You know, well, they have all these photos from the book and 
we'll just use most of those and we'll find some new ones. And then we get in there and we're like, oh, this, this was, this photo is pretty good, but there's gotta be something better, you know? <laughs> and it just, we are obsessive. We are obsessive. Yeah, we're obsessive. And it's like it that just, photo, that photo, that moment, really the moment in the film is about to be, it's about, it should be about this moment where, uh, they're really having fun together, but the photo we have in there, it doesn't really look like they're having fun together. Let's go back through all the thousands of photos again <laughs> and find the one that actually has the right look in their eye of joy and captures that moment in yeah. the way we need it to. And, and so that's where like Zoe was amazing. Zoe Shack, who's, who edited this with me, like it would literally be that. That's a great example. We would, we would, you know, we would need a, a moment where it's like, exactly, like, would they need to be having fun? And we would be like, Zoe, can you make a, a string out and just call it fun? And then, and then she would just go through the archive and just, she could just, I mean, she probably knows, she knows all the, the Beastie Boys archive better than anyone at this point, I would think. But she would just it, go through every single photo and like, just pull up fun. They're having fun here. And then we would just pull from that. It was incredible. And she got them to open up MTV, right? Like that was because you guys got like a trove from them, right? Yeah, she had an amazing relationship with this, with the people in like the archive department there. And they would just send us just hours and hours and hours of tape. And, and, you know, I guess it was all on hard drives, but just the raw tape of an interview that Kurt Loder did with them in 1996, you know? Like every angle from that interview, they would just send to us. Mm -hmm. And then we would just sit there and, you know, that's your job, I guess. You just sit there and listen <laughs> to it. And then you find that one thing that you need, that one perfect thing. And then you've got it. And then tell me about the Beastie Boys archive itself, because it sounded like that was only partially tapped for the book, right? And there's a whole video component that, and 16 millimeter video component that you guys kind of found. Yeah, they have this, they have... I guess they they do a lot. Of, they put a lot of their footage. They was part. I mean, they had an amazingly um, documented and organized uh, archive, and they had this. They they were, it was all in this place called Iron Mountain, which I guess is where you store video. And they they gave us this Google this Google doc that had like you know like eighty pages of of things that they had. You know, uh, and a lot of it we already had, but at the very end we were we we needed. We, we realized all we had from them recording Paul's Boutique was photos and we never, we could just never find any video of it. And there was, there were these tapes that were like miss that were like, it was, they were just called unlabeled and, but it, they were from, they had a year on them. It was 1989 and we asked for them to get, to get transferred. And like, I think it was like the last week we were editing, uh, like really when we were locking they sent all of this footage and one of the tapes was that that 16 millimeter footage that's them recording paul's boutique and then there's some of them walking around the grass off house uh at the pool at night and it was just amazing it was just like your the thing you've been dreaming about having for five months just shows up and it's like the three guys in a recording studio recording Paul's boutique, laughing, smiling, having fun together. It was just like... And it was this moment that was very... That wasn't that well documented because it was after Ill, after License to Ill and they'd been just, you know, gone through this giant, you know, party bro rock star thing, come out the other side 
washed up on this, you know, washed up shipwrecked basically after their their relationship with their label broke down and they just they got out of there and they sort of made this bond that it's just the three of them nobody else make making any decisions and mike describes it i think it's in the thing he he they became very protective and isolated and didn't really want to trust other people outside and like they didn't want to let other videographers video makers photographers they just want to do everything themselves and um and they're living in LA, just like having this insane, you know, like 21 years old, uh, living in this, you know, house in the Hollywood Hills. And I feel like they might have just got into weed at that point in time because they were mostly drinking before that. And they just, they moved to California and discovered weed. And I don't think they knew how to moderate it. So they're just, compl- they're so high in this footage. It's just, and they're, and they're like dressing on the, they're renting out this house from uh, this this couple that it was out of town that was like, maybe they're a couple that are in their 60s. And so their heyday was in the 70s when, and they had all this 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 closet full of insane uh, 1970s, you know, uh, big fur coats and, and uh, jumpsuits and n- necklaces and fur hats. And, and so they're all dressed up, but all like stoned out of their head, and they got into this woman's closet and just are wearing these clothes all, you know, all over, all, you know, going to breakfast in these clothes and wearing them to the studio. And yeah, that footage was was perfect. Spike, when did you start? Which, you know, which period of this did you did you start becoming part of their world? I met them originally, but I guess not too far after Paul's boutique. But mm-hmm. I didn't really get to know them until maybe a year or so later, around like when they're putting out "Check Your Head," and um, and uh, and I was I was a photographer. Me and my friends had a magazine called Dirt Magazine, and we shot we did an article on them, and we loved them. My friend Andy Jenkins and Mark Lumen, we had this magazine, and we loved them, and so we put them on the cover of the first issue, and we we so we just and it just felt like. Uh, I don't know, just like not necessarily meeting them the first time because meeting the first time, you know, we were shooting photos and interviewing them and they were very, you know, they were notoriously, uh, I don't know, I wouldn't say a difficult interview, but like difficult to get a straight answer out of, but like a hilarious interview because they were sort of just this, uh, it was like a stew of inside jokes and um, absurdity and, uh and so we, we, it wasn't until I really sort of reconnected them and started hanging out with them and hanging up at their studio and just making stuff with them that it was, but it, it was very easy. It was super, they weren't like, they didn't look at me like, they weren't like, oh, we're rock stars and you're some kid. They were just like, we're all just people making shit. And mm-hmm. it was over in Atwater Village in the east side of LA when nothing was over there. And so like, it was, I don't know, just like there was a group of, it was sort of this place, their studio was a place people could sort of roll through and different, you know, musicians and I don't know, just photographers. And we made this magazine called Grand Royal Magazine. That was the first, one of the first things we did together is we helped them start their magazine, Grand Royal, which was a super fun magazine to sort of about any and everything we wanted to make the writer do articles about. One thing I want to make sure we talk about before, before I let you guys go, um, you know the music itself. You know is this thing where you get to you get to score this to to the to the Beastie Boys. Um, but you know the thing that I loved about it, and I, I really drilled into it this morning rewatching it. The thing that I love about it was the 
origin of the music, the kind of like what was the what was the musical hook or what was that thing or what was the and sometimes with these musical docs it's very much like an autobiography type thing. But in this in, there is an element there. But one gets this feeling of the kind of what you were in trying to use the music. It's kind of like the prep into it in terms of, of where it came from. Maybe the baseline from sabotage or maybe, a, you know, whatever it was. And that was a lot of fun, but it's also a matter of like, when are you going to use the music? Right. Yeah. I mean, we, I had never really, I had always imagined, I mean, there's two elements. I think that I had always imagined that, you know, when, when we talked about the song, you know, we'd play the song, you know, I knew that would be, a big element of this, you know, but the, the thing that, that really what I was surprised by when we started cutting was like how we were able to score the thing, you know, like when we, we when we were talking about earlier, it was for some reason I had, when I, when I sat down to cut it with Zoe, when we sat down, I thought, well, we'll just cut the, you know, we'll cut it the way it happened live, you know? And then I was talking to Spike about it. We were in New York. We had just done Aziz's, we did Aziz's uh, live special. And we went out to breakfast and I said, yeah, I'm, I'm starting to cut it now. And I'm just going to cut it just the live show and not put anything on top of it. And Spike was like, really? <laughs> Why are you going to do it like that? And I was like, well, I'm just going to start like that. He's like, well, the fun thing is going to be when you start, we start putting B-roll over it. I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm going to do that eventually, but I just hadn't done it yet. And I hadn't really thought about doing that, you know, like as much as we do end up, ended up doing it, you know. And I started putting this B-roll over it. And then I, it was like, oh, this we could just cut this thing like a documentary. And then that's when I went and I listened to the, uh, the, the mix-up, you know, the, their instrumental thing, their instrumental album. And started like being able to use the instrumental album that, that they recorded, you know, that I listened to when I was like 15 years old to be able to use that as like the score for the film was like incredible. Cause it just, it's, I knew where every song ended up would go and I knew like where all the breaks were. And it was just like, so to be able to like score the film with their music was incredible. And then when we got into the sections where it was about each individual song you know, like on Sabotage, we were able to get like the stems, like the baseline stems and like remix like some of the intros to like kind of fit the way we wanted to wanted it to fit and edit around it and get the drums, like the drum stems and things like that. So it was like, it was so fun. It was like what you, again, what you like, the funnest part of editing, you know, you could sort of tailor these moments around the music and it was so that was that was a, a big highlight for me was working with the music. Well, I was going to say also that I think uh, from 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 the beginning of the second version of the live show, not the book reading, but the one we, we the, the the one where we put to, put it together, the more narrative version. Um, there was a lot of music that they made that was really important to me, or songs that were important to me, or moments, or lyrics, and so. And even conceiving the live show, I conceived them around music that meant a lot to me. I, 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 uh, even like on uh, Paul's Boutique, Shake Your Rump, the video that, Yauk, that helped his uncle Nathaniel Hornblower make is on the roof of their apartment building. And there's just three 16 millimeter cameras, one really high, like around seven foot, one around 
five foot eye level, one super low, and they're all fisheye lenses in a triangle facing each other. And it's just one take where the guys are going from camera to camera. And for one, that I love that song, and two, that video is just so simple and so genius that instead of cutting to different angles, instead of doing three different takes, you're doing one take and just cutting to different angles in the take. And so I, I just use all this stuff that I loved and that like um, there's the opening lyric on Pass the Mic that Adam Yauch, uh, Adam Yauch's line, uh, if you can feel what I'm feeling, it's a musical masterpiece, hear what I'm dealing, well, that's cool at least. What comes through in my mind, comes through in my walk, true feelings of soul in the way that I talk. And that was something that like, it just captured Yauch so well. It just like, it was something that for me personally, when I think of Yauch in his elegance and just coolness and deepness, the combination of those three things, I felt like that lyric really captured it. And, um, and so I felt like, yeah, in that way, I don't know, it, it, the way the movie is kind of personal to me in that way. It was personal to me in a lot of ways. And I thought like personal to me in terms of the, the, what the music means to me and the music that it inspired me. And also it was personal to me to like make this thing about these three people that I love. And um, not only that I love their music, but I love them. And um, which remind, which also there was a song that was that no one had ever talked about, but it, I'd always loved it on Hello Nasty called, I don't know. And it's this very quiet, simple song that Yauk is singing, and I, I just I knew that we that we were going to use that. I knew that that was going to be in the end. That was the perfect feeling. I I don't know if we had it in the show in the fall or not. No, what, put... what happened was we were rehearsing in L.A. We did this really intimate rehearsal where it just me, Spike, Amanda, and Carrie, probably Jason, that are producers sat in the, in the audience at this theater in Culver City and then Mike and Adam just read through and they got to the end and they started reading uh, they were reading the very last scene you know the the sequence where they're talking about their lifelong friendship and Spike, <laughs> Spike pulled his iPhone out and he went to the song and you start playing it on your iPhone as they were reading it for the first time and you just like play you like turned it down to just the right level and you like he like scored the moment um as they were reading the 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 scene in the in the theater and from there then on it just was per, it was just it's, like the two things yeah. were connected perfectly you know and yeah and the other thing about the song is it's um i mean if you listen to it it's yauk sort of pondering what all of the, what life is and um and surrendering to the fact that he doesn't know what it is. And, uh, and, and I think that just to be able to like, and I think this was one of the, th the things that was so special to, to me and I know to Mike and Adam was getting to hang out with Yauk for that period of time that we made it and think about him and talk about him and, um, and make this film it's you know it that it, 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 it is really about him and uh, you know it's 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 about the three of them and their band but we were always conscious that we wanted him to be on stage with us and we wanted him to be in the room with us and 
So we were always thinking about, you know, what he would have said or what he, what, or what he did say or what he had, what we, we, we just always wanted him with us in his presence and uh, which was what, why that song meant so much to me to begin with, but also why, why it meant so much that we could put it in, in, the, in, the, in the show at that point in the show and we're, where Mike and Adam are up there talking about Yauk and who he was. And you could feel that you could feel his presence. You could feel you could feel, you know, how much even just in their performance and them talking about him and his presence. I, I I'm curious um, because that was so felt. Was I don't know what the source was, but there was one interview with with Yauk that you guys you cut. I mean, there was a few with the guys, you know, kind of MTV type interviews, but there was one that was clearly like a sit down with him. And it's interesting considering how emotional and how much his presence was felt when we do actually see him talking in the way that 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 interview is used as almost in conversation with the two of them on stage. I'm wondering um, about balancing that and when to use that. And, you know, because it, it, it's so powerful when you do see him because of all the things you just said. Yeah, I mean, we just we I think that was just another an another thing that you just find from editing, you know, it's just like, we're sitting there reading, you know, watching Zoe and I are sitting there watching the interview and like, he's describing what it, what it was like when they played their first show at John Barry's loft. You're like, now we can use the, I mean, now we have Adam telling us what the loft was like. We don't have to have Mike or Adam or uh, uh, Adam tell us, you know what the loft was like. We have we have an interview with Yauk saying it, so we can just mm-hmm. we can use the guys kind of teeing it up, and then Yauk can just like describe what it was like in there. And then later, you know, it, later in that same interview, you know, they're talking about recording "Shake Your Rub" or the or um, Paul's Boutique, and same thing. It's like we haven't, you know, we we could just put this. He can he. Was it we were able to just kind of weave him into the to the storytelling of it, which know? was so which was so important in terms of like because the, origi- the original original you know, the thing that we set out to do especially at the beginning of editing but certainly in the show was we wanted to make this this live documentary where only the people that were in the car are telling you the story only Mike and Adam and Yauk are telling you the story. No, there's no interviews with other talking heads. There's nobody talking about how important they are culturally or how important who they influenced or any of that stuff. There's no, there's no perspective from outside of the three of theirs and, and how important that was. And, and, and that the fact, and so it was so important to find Yauk's voice as, you know, like we could tell, we could talk about things that Yauk said or did but to have his actual voice in there was such a yeah I was yeah it was super was really important to us. And Jeff, the way you use some of the 
B-roll, some of the photos with him and the framing and the way you, the way that you kept him, even sometimes, often in the photos, he's in the backdrop and it's like, even just the way that it's framed or we go into it, it was really beautiful. You, you did an incredible job keeping him there, but also not like in this whole, like, this is the Yauk section. It was, it was wonderful. You know, and, I, and I'll, I'll say this also, you know, I, I'm a sucker for all these music docs and, and also these biopics, but you know. The thing is, is that so many of these, it's now to do them, you have to, even if you're doing a scripted one or something, it's all authorized. It's all like, if you want the music, they're going to have to have a say. And so the thing that's so wonderful about this is why not have the Beastie Boys tell their story, you know, instead of, you know, it, it, it make it in their voice. And that's what you guys really found here. And, and they did too. But like finding a way for them to tell their story in their personality and from inside the car. It's a, it's a real treat. It's a, it's a real, real treat for, for beyond even just Beastie Boy fans, but just as a, as a kind of twist on, on, on the genre, if you will. And so it's it's wonderful. And also, well, well, thank you. And I think that, uh, I mean, some of it is, a lot of it is also just credit to who the three of them are because most I don't know how many bands have been around for thirty five years and have it the and the band members are still best friends. I think that is that's really rare that the way they operated the way and I remember when I was young and I met them I was kind of in I was always trying to understand it like and in awe of the fact that they I mean they get annoyed at each other but they were they were like there was this loyalty and it was probably forged out of what they went through on their first record but there was this loyalty to each other that was like thick and impenetrable. And, um, and I remember Mike told me this rule one time that like the, uh, any one of the three of them could veto something. It didn't, it wasn't like a majority rules. It had to be all three of them wanted to do something. If any one of the three of them didn't want to do it, then they wouldn't do it. And it was, that was the way they'd set it up after license to ill in a very like uh, intentional way. And, so anyways, I, I think that the the band is the band and the three of them are just special people and um and the film's certainly about the band and about the uh you know, it's a band documentary, but it's like yeah, it it, it was really important to really make the film about the their, their friendship and what and what just what I me being around their friendship and getting what it what I got out of it, what it, the gift of of, of being able to see their friendship and experience their friendship and be part of it. You guys did a wonderful job. Thank you. Thank, thank, thank you. you for uh, your time here. All right. Good. Thanks, Thanks so Chris. And today's podcast was brought to you by Apple TV Plus and their original series, The Morning Show, which is for your consideration in all eligible Emmy categories, including Best Drama Series.